When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Support the podcast on Patreon by joining the It's All Cobblers to Me fan club. Every month, you'll receive access to exclusive bonus content, such as our Meet the Staff series, hear our player interviews before anyone else, and be invited to regular meetups. By joining the fan club, you'll be helping us to continue our sponsorship of NTFC women's player Abby Bruin and enable us to keep the podcast and all our other content going to the high standards you expect. To join the fan club, go to patreon.com forward slash cobblers to me. Brain again, and he's got it! Gavin was closing in. Oh, Gavin has scored! Abdul Osman against Brad Jones to put Liverpool out of the cup and not that to three! Hello, I'm Danny and welcome to a special edition of It's All Cobblers. To me, we hope you're still having a great summer. It's now July and this week the Cobblers are going to step up their pre-season preparation, heading to Scotland for a training camp and more than likely to sign some more players. In the meantime, we've been busy making some content for our lovely fan club members who gain access to our Slack channel and bonus podcasts like the recent It's All Nations League to me and to my quiz as well as a Euro 2022 sweepstake that happened this weekend. If you want some of that bonus context, sign up now at patreon.com forward slash cobblers to me from as little as £2 a month. This week, we've got a very, very special guest for you. But first, Charles, you're here as well. Hello, mate. I'm very excited about this. I'm also very excited. He wanted his own intro music. And and technically, (laughs) technically, technically, he is in the intro music. He is. It's very true. And so you can you can take a guess, listeners, at who we've got with us. Um, he played for the Cobblers for three years in the early 90s with a Cobblers career that closed with one of the most iconic games in our history. He can now be found in the commentary box for some of our games alongside the one and only Tim Oglethorpe. Please welcome to the podcast, the one and only Mr. Terry Angus. How are you, Terry? I'm fine. Thank you very much, Danny and Charles. I just We need some clarity, though, because 
because you've just said he wanted his own intro music. <laughs> but you see, there's a backstory to everything, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, God. So if you're not willing to give the backstory to that, I'll give it. In fact, I'll give it anyway. So you gave Tim Oglethorpe an intro music, which you quite happily told me. Then Charles said to you, Danny, we've got no intro music today. And Danny went, well, it doesn't matter. We'll just crack on. I had to take ombridge to that. I'd say, well, what is it? You know, I I want some intro music. What would you choose, Terry? If if you could have one song that that would sum you up, that we could bring you on with, what would it be? Has anybody ever made the title, He's Not Very Good? (laughs) If we could find that track, that would be a start. Uh, I think I'd have something... See, I like kind of slow ballady type records. Oh, okay, yeah. But I think one of my favourite, I suppose, I would go Smokey Robinson, Tears of a Clown. Oh, nice. Yeah, Early nice, UB40. Nice. Love that. Marv, bit of Marvin Gaye. Yeah. Like uh, if we're going down the R&B road, anything from that 90s, yeah. It's not really intro music, is it? I'm just happy with the Osmond Goal. Terry Angus screaming over the top. <laughs> absolutely horrendous. And we'll leave it there. So we'll, we'll definitely get onto that later on. But um, to start with, let's go back to the very start then. Yeah, um, sure. Your very first memory of football, What's what was it? Was it something on TV? Was it a game you went to? No, How did it all start for you? Do you know what? That's not a question I've been asked a lot. And I think... I grew up in Coventry, which most people will most probably know because I'm always banging on about it. Um, And West Indian parents, it was a case of used to used to go to church. And this lad who lived up the road, Pete Lucas, he played for a Sunday league side. And with him playing for this Sunday league side, he came to me and said, oh, do you want to play? Because I've been playing in the school team, Cannon Park Juniors. And I was, when I started playing for the school team, I was seven. And most of the kids in the school team were 10 and 11. So I've been playing for the school team for about two, three years, three years above myself. Afro, up front, left foot, two foot nothing. It's just, yeah, hard to picture now. And then Pete Lucas said, do you want to play for our Sunday league team? I said, well, church or football? (laughs) I went yeah okay I'll play without having that whole West Indian conversation about now I've got to go and tell my mom and dad (laughs) do you know what I'm saying Uh, how how did they take it well I've made this adult decision as a nine-year-old to go and play Sunday league football and not go to church so I roll in and I have to wait for that moment when my dad's watching cricket and he's all sport hyped up. And I said, oh, Mr. Lucas, not Pete Lucas, the lad, Mr. Lucas wants to know if I want to play for their their football team. Didn't mention Sunday. You know what I mean? Like you've missed out major bits of the intro. (laughs) See what I'm saying? I've missed out major bits. So I said, he wants to know if I play for the football team. Now, my dad was all over me playing for the school team. He was all over that because he thought he was brilliant. So he went, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who plays? I said, well, Pete and a few lads, 
few of the few of the lads from over the parts of Coventry. A bit of a name drop here. Tim Flowers played in that team. Right. So I goes, he goes, yeah, yeah. And then just as I was getting up, I went, it's on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I've walked out. But he'd already said yes. So if I vaguely remember, I think I just got ready on the Sunday. And they come and knock on my door. And I said, oh, I'm going now. Where are you going? It's football. Remember, you said I could go. And I think my dad then couldn't turn around, could he? Because Mr. Lucas is at the door. My dad always wanted to impress anybody but us. And so <laughs> he kind of just let me go. And that was it. So my first memory is Cannon Park Juniors playing when I was seven and then playing Sunday League for Coventry Dynamo. And it was really good. But I think the very first TV football memory was, I think it was 74 World Cup, when I'd run home from school, only a dot I was, little kid, and just sit in front of the TV and just watch. I remember Gerd Muller, don't ask me why. But my memory was, it was just playing for Cannon Park and Cov Dynamo. And it was brilliant. Cannon Park played in the Ajax kit. We had the Ajax kit with the red stripe down the middle and Cov Dynamo played in a red top with blue shorts, red socks. And those are the things I remember. Brilliant. Are you still playing up front at this point as well? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I didn't even know there was a position called defence <laughs> or midfield. I knew there was some bloke in green who would stop me scoring goals. I was prolific. I was absolutely prolific. I think... One year, that season, because you've got to bear in mind, it wasn't narrow pitches, it was big pitches. I think that season, I might have scored somewhere around 70 goals. You've come through at Coventry Sporting, I think it was, wasn't it? And then BS Rugby. Well, yeah, um, well, you? <laughs> <laughs> which, which, at what point do you, then, do you drop back into a defensive role? Is it something you, when you're a little bit older? Or is yeah, it, well, well what, what happened was... It, I'd been playing, I played centre forward for the school. Then I went to my senior school and we weren't very good. Played centre forward there as well. Carried on playing centre forward Sunday league. Got signed on a schoolboy form at Coventry at centre forward. So 14. And I was only little. Seriously, I was so small. And I was mixing with lads from all over the country because Coventry were getting them in on trial and some were schoolboy signed. It was different to the academy system now. You could sign anybody from anywhere. And I was playing for Coventry schools as well, scoring goals for them. And then it was, must have been about when I was 15, you start to play less games competitively because school exams and things like that. And I'm a January birthday. So my 16th birthday, January, my goal scoring exploits had slowed down because I started to grow. People were just bigger than me. I I didn't understand the game. I didn't have TV, enough TV to be able to watch it. I never, it wasn't an era where black lads would go and watch football, live football. We just, you, you just didn't feel safe. And my dad was disabled, so I had no one to take me. My brother might have took me, but it wasn't a safe environment. And then when I joined, when I left school, I didn't get the what's now a scholarship. I didn't get the apprenticeship at Coventry. 
So I went to I went to college, and I started playing for Coventry Sporting Youth Team. And I I had grown, and I played up front for them. But I'd grown, and the thing you, you get all gangly, and you, your coordination's gone, and all the rest of it. And I was quite quick. My coordination had gone. I suppose I'd lost confidence really playing up front because I wasn't scoring. I wasn't getting the opportunity. So then I started playing. I just dropped to left back for some unknown reason. And then I dropped to right back, came through the youth system. And then the first team manager at Coventry Sporting, because we're playing reserves as well, threw me in at right back because somebody was injured. And it just went from there. But I'd grown now something like four or five inches over a period of seven, eight months. So I was tall. I was now wasn't suited for centre forward. So I started playing fullback. And I thought, this ain't bad because all the plays in front of you, you, you tackle a few people. And I wasn't the greatest tackler. You tackle a few people and you just bomb on. And I, I was the original Kyle Walker without the ability. <laughs> I just used to bomb on. Seriously, bomb on. I found this right wing, check back onto my left and whip, whip a crossing. And then as it went on at Cov Sporting, I think they moved me and played me at centre-back once. And then it just went from there. And I just carried on playing centre-back from there. And I started filling out a bit, and it, it just it just developed from there, and I didn't look back. Were you at all precious about that, Terry, in terms of, you know, you start off as centre-forward, that's the glory position, isn't it, in the team, the striker? Were you precious about the fact, or, or were you just happy to be playing football at that stage? Well, I was never precious. As me as an individual, I'm never precious about, you know, I should be doing that, I should be doing that, and even through my career, I wasn't. So I wasn't precious about it. I was just looking at it going, well, this is an opportunity. And I kind of thrive on a challenge, you know. So I looked at it and thought, well, I'm doing all right here. And I, th I think I've got a couple of MOMs, if I remember rightly. And I thought, this ain't too bad. So the challenge to me was now, go on, go now, Terry, and be the best you can be. So I'm 18, 19 now, never played centre-back. Be the best you can be at this position. And with all due respect to Coventry Sport and the teams we're playing in, the coaching wasn't like it is now. It wasn't as structured as it is now. So you learn on the job and you learn by people shouting at you. And these are hardened non-league players shouting at you. You shouldn't be there. And you learn by your mistakes. But because I was quick, any ball over the top, I'd just get there first and I'd just roll it back to the keeper or kick it out of play. And anything in front of me, I always knew if you turn, you're not going to beat me. So you, you kind of learnt it as you went along. And that, that to me, if, if I had had coaching, maybe there'd have been too much thought around it. And so I just played, I suppose it's off the cuff. I'm not sure you could do it now, but I played off the cuff and I enjoyed it. And that was it because we I had nothing else in my life. I had I didn't we, we never had any money where I could go out and go places. I just wanted to play football. And ironically, at the time, I was working for Sainsbury's 
and my shifts at Sainsbury's were Monday to Friday and Tuesday to Saturday. So every other Saturday I couldn't play because I was working. And that's when I played for the reserves. So I learnt my craft in the reserves every other week for Cos Sporting until the time come where they looked like they were going to start playing me regularly at 19. And I thought, I'm leaving Sainsbury's and I'm going to get a Monday to Friday job, which I did. Moving on a couple of years, you moved to the Cobblers in 1990. Yeah. We'd just been relegated to the fourth division at the time, the equivalent of League Two now. Bit of a time of change with Graham Carr, who'd taken us to that record-breaking title win a couple of years earlier. He's now gone after relegation. Theo Foley comes in. Yeah. What did you make, firstly, of the surroundings of the county ground and everything like that when you first arrived in Northampton? I've been playing at VS Rugby and under Jimmy Knox, who was brother of Archie Knox, who was the assistant to Alex Ferguson. And we had two years. And I'm not being funny, it was brilliant two years. Very good semi-pro players. And by my own admission, I was playing really well. So bearing in mind now, I had most probably been playing non-league on a regular basis at centre-back, left-back, whatever, three years, two, three years. And I've been doing really well. And I played against Peter Taylor and Andy Hessentyler. And they played for Dartford. And I think Peter Taylor was player-manager and Andy Hessentyler was just a very, very good centre midfielder. And I'd always played well against them. They were then going to go to Watford to take over the managerial roles at Watford. And they wanted a centre-back because um, Dean Holdsworth's brother, David Holdsworth, he was at Watford, centre-back, doing well, and West Ham were going to buy him. So Peter Taylor and Andy Hessenthaler said, we're going to have that Terry Angus. So it was all set. I was going to go to Watford. David Holdsworth couple of games before the end of the season so this was all going on before the end of the season damages his knee horrendous so he doesn't go to West Ham I don't go to Watford Mark Lawrenson I think at the time was at Peterborough and he was showing a lot of interest and then when that Watford thing broke down I was going to go to Peterborough but I don't know what happened that broke down Thank God it did, though, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've been, I've been playing against Theo's son, Adrian, who played for Dartford. I think, no, he played for another one of them Southern clubs. And Theo went to Northampton. He must have said to Adrian, I need a centre-back. Adrian went, Terry Angus. So I get a message through and I go to Northampton for a week, a week's trial. Now, and I'm not ashamed to say it, I then I then have to go, where are they in the league? <laughs> not got a clue. Have a look. They've been relegated, haven't they? So I looked, I thought, I looked in League One to start with. I thought, they're not in League One. <laughs> Which was the old Division Two, wasn't it? I looked in, I thought, where are they? Looked again. I'm flipping hell. <laughs> When I think I said, bloody hell, they're in the bottom. No. So I thought, oh, anyway. So I went along and I parked. Now, if you imagine that pub where the cobblers was, mm-hmm. there's, a, yeah. there's a pub, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, I used to always park my car there. 
So I parked my car there, walked across, tried the door because we used to go into the entrance there. It was on that main road. That's where the entrance was. Tried the door, opened, walked in, no one's around. And you're a bit nervous anyway. I'm like, what's going on here? So I think I asked somebody, you know, Terry Anger, something on trial, did it? Yeah, go into the change room. And I think I must have arrived in the change room a little bit late because everybody was in there. Everyone. And I just thought, oh my God. But the changing rooms were shambles. They were horrendous. So all I fixed my eyes on was this peg that was straight in front of me. I didn't look left. I didn't look right. I just went to this peg. Put my stuff on the peg. And somebody said, uh, have you got some kit? I said, yeah, 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 I've got some kit. Joe Kiernan, bless his soul, came through. And he went, oh, are you? Yeah, you all right? Yeah, yeah. So I thought, okay, great. Got changed. Didn't say a word to anyone because I'm kind of assessing everything. And I always remember uh, Irving Gurnan, he was chirpy. Thorpey, he was chirpy. And Brownie, they, they had, they, there was a lot going on. And I just focused on it and I thought, okay. I thought, I wonder where we're Next thing they go, right, trainers, and then we'll uh, bring your boots with you. And I thought, it's pre-season, but okay. But you lads are heading out the door, going back outside. <laughs> I'm like, where the bloody hell are they going? Seriously. <laughs> I'm like, because as you used to come down, you come out of the change room, you walk down the tunnel and the young lads were on the right. They changed on the right as you're going towards the ground. The tunnel to get to the pitch was to the left. We turned right and we went back out the front door. I'm like, what? <laughs> and I went, right, so we'll run then to the training ground and then we'll go from there. And I'm thinking... We're running to the training ground. <laughs> Where's the training ground? And you can, I, I, it's hard to remember, but I, I'm sure lads were like, oh, bloody hell, bloody hell. <laughs> and so running, it felt like we were running for half an hour. And we we ran over to, is it St. Andrew's Hospital? Yes, I think so, yeah. I think we ran over them sides anyway. Yeah. Right, so we end up over there. I'm like, right. Where's the cones? Where's the goals? Where's the nets? Where's anything? It's just a piece of green grass. I'm like, really? Is this it? Anyway, do the training. Get on with Theo. Get back. By the end of the week, Theo then says, yeah, we want to sign you. And I think my need to be a footballer overrode the shit changing rooms, the crappy training pitch, the rubbish training kit, the rubbish cones, the rubbish everything, the rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. That was the football club. And I signed. And that, that was my awakening. Oh, I remember going home to my mum because my dad had died by now. I'd going home to my mum and she said, how did it go? I said, yeah, it was all right. It was all right. But that served me well. Because if I had gone into a club that was gave you everything, 
I'm not so sure I would have been the person I was. I know you started in in terms of the youth with with Coventry City, but you've then fallen out of that side of the game and you've gone into, you know, with Coventry Sporting and VS Rugby and you're coming into the Football League and yet you're probably still looking at surroundings that are completely non-league to you. Oh, massively, Charles, massively non-league. And you've got to bear in mind now, right, I'm I'm 24 now. So I'd already said at VS, this is my last chance. This season at VS, this is my last chance to try and crack it. And I did crack it. So at 24, you're going in. And I wasn't expecting marble floors and all that. I just go into everything with trying to be the best I can be. And I thought, these surroundings now, I've got to make it work. That's where I was. And Theo was a magnificent guy for me. Joe was wonderful. So I really enjoyed it. But it was a constant battle. And we weren't very good. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of Theo, obviously he worked under George Graham just before coming here. Was there any of that sort of defensive drill always running, that similar kind of thing you always associate with George Graham going on with you as well? Did he take a lot of that on? No. With the cobblers? Believe it or (laughs) not. Believe it or not, Danny didn't. He he actually didn't. I remember in the early bits because I always thought it's strange we don't do this with a goal behind us. We used to do this stuff, and to be fair to him, he took a punt on me and, and put me in. We used to do a kind of drill where the four defenders would line up just on some random piece of grass, and then people would come in waves. They call it wave attacks. So they come and attack the four of us and try and get beyond us. There wasn't a goal for them to hit. They just had to get beyond us. And that's the only thing that I kind of remember. And even if we did uh, possession, so you're talking about a 40 by 40 box, you've maybe got 14 players in, you've got some on the edge, and you're just keeping the ball. He would just go, yeah, try and close him down quicker. But there was that never that George Graham Drill, 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 defence, 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 defence. Needless to say, don't concede, don't concede. And I mean, that's obvious because in that first season, we weren't very good and we conceded a lot of goals. Um, So it was never that which was a surprise. But he was a quite an attacking-minded manager considering where he had come from. He gave... Very average players like myself, the confidence to be able to go and express yourself. But we, there was times we just weren't good enough. You know, and in life, sometimes you're not good enough. Somebody is better than you. And we got beat because most teams were better than us, whether that be organisational or tactical and technical. You say you've had, you actually had a really good first half of that season when you first arrived you put you put together a quite a good few runs of three or four results in a row going up to January you're doing well you've only lost three or four games it's just tailed off in the second half of the season didn't it and especially the last what seven or eight games we just didn't win did, did anything happen in the middle of that season that you thought it's just starting to go downhill now or? what most probably happened was we punched above our weight and then you get to a point where you hit the brick wall 
and you've not got a mallet to knock it down. So at that time, we needed an influx, and it is an influx, three, three, four players of energy because we were working off the same bases of players. I remember there was people like Trevor Quo, who was, I think, had sent out on loan. We had, I think, Mickey Bell, who had just come from the youth team, if I remember rightly. We had some fringe players, myself, who was just getting used used to that whole thing. I had not been used to full-time football. We had, and this is a key, and I say it to this day, Kevin Wilkins' injury was a major, major effect on us. Because Kevin Wilkin had played the full season, we'd have most probably got promoted. And and I don't say that lightly. Yeah. Because trust me when I tell you he was class. He 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 would he would have stayed there a year and then he'd have jumped up two leagues. And I think that was a major thing. Now you had to rely on players who weren't good enough the year before and they just weren't good enough. And maybe with hindsight, Theo had to do some soul searching for himself to be able to get some of these players back on board because a lot of them have been out of the team. And now, as you say, we started to struggle. Where did we end up that year? Uh, tenth. Right. So from ending up tenth, could have potentially ended up fourth. I'm not even sure how many games Kevin played that year. I don't even think he played five. I think all those factors, Kevin, inexperience, my side, um, players not good enough, tactically and technically, hitting the brick wall, not having the squad to be able to cope, impacted us in the end. And in the end, you look at a tenth when you go... Okay, a lot of people would have took that, but really it should have been a top four, top five. Yeah, and did that carry over into the next season? We finished 16th the following season, never really got going. There was a change then, wasn't there? There was, I think there was a lot of players coming out. Um, A lot were out of contract. So you you then had to kind of start again, didn't you? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and and I know Pat Scully. They got him from Arsenal centre back. He was a good acquisition. But I think the carryover was more behind the scenes because I know Theo was asking for things which the club weren't delivering because Theo recognised we needed strength in certain positions. Kevin Wilkin wasn't going to come back because he was still struggling. We just lacked bodies and bodies who were could take us on that next level of the journey. And I think that was the difficulty. So the second year, yes, there was a carryover, but I think Theo was maybe thinking this job is not what was on the packet. It's that thing, isn't it? Like you've got to entice managers and players to a club so you therefore maybe say right well this is what's going to be available to you and this is where you're going to be able to go and and take it when like you say when those promises don't necessarily come through that puts a very difficult position yeah onto the manager and and the team as well because at the end of the day 
you as a player will have been going and, and probably thinking to yourself, you knew where the weaknesses were and, and what needed to happen to strengthen those weaknesses. And then you're probably seeing that they aren't being strengthened. So yeah. in your mind, you're then you're seeing as a player that this isn't happening. So you're probably seeing, I mean, it depends how professional, you know, the management team are, the coaching team are, but you're probably getting a sense that there's frustration from them. There's also frustration from you and the rest of the team. There's, there's undoubtedly, you know, frustration going to be in the boardroom as well. Of course there will be. But okay. it doesn't make for a harmonious dressing room. You've then got to go and get into that that kind of everybody's against us mentality, haven't you? And 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 go at it that way. And that's really the only way that you can get any success. I agree. But what you've got to realise, I'm coming in from a background of non-league football where, I kid you not, there is a massive togetherness, right? And we're all pulling in the same direction. So naively, I was thinking pro football will be just the same. But in the first year when you hear him sniping about the manager and he don't like him over there and da 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 you're going, oh, what's going on here? Mm. And then that then manifests itself into the second year because you lose a few games and such and such ain't playing. And then people start, and as you rightly said, you want everybody to come together to pull in the right direction. You really do. But you still got those outside, no, the inside influences who are talking outside, which doesn't help anything. So I think there's, it's a combination of a lot of things. And maybe Theo got to a point where he might look at it and go, yeah, maybe I could have done a little bit more. Maybe I could have changed the shape of the team. So the nucleus of the team that was in 1991 was similar to 91-92, but now with some of the professionals, and I wasn't one of them, some of the professionals now questioning everything and going, oh, this is rubbish. And that you know that whole negative tone, which then starts to drag people down. And, and so it goes from there. And then a couple of times we trained at the race course. You, you'd go up there and train. And then other days you'd be training down. So the whole infrastructure, you're looking at it, you go, this is, what's going on here? What, we're training at a race course? Hello, Mrs. Simpson. Sorry, I'm coming <laughs> over your dog. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and, 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 then, and then Mr. Jones would come and bring some tea out from the houses <laughs> at the side. Oh, you lads want a drink? <laughs> and then somebody would actually come and come out with the classic line of, Oh, are you like a local Sunday League side? Are you just, <laughs> oh, you like, no. seriously? <laughs> because you would not expect Northampton Town Football Club to be trained on the race course. Mm. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <nice. nuts. laughs> it is. I mean, at, at that point then, Terry, when, when, so obviously Theo leaves and it's Phil Child who steps up to become player manager. I mean, I imagine that, therefore, you've already seen the fact that things aren't happening as you would expect them to in a professional football you know, club. Yeah. And this is no disrespect to, to Charlie whatsoever here, but as a playing group, you see one of the players getting given the manager's job rather than having 
an experienced pro manager coming in must have been another kind of nail almost in that coffin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you're you're right, Charles. But I have to tell you this: it's it's he's not one of my friends. Right. Before Theo left, I get into an argument with Phil Chard. So the argument develops into nearly a physical altercation, right? So he's proper. He's gone off. Can't remember what happened. And I remember Irving Gurnham pulled us apart and Wayne Williams pulled us apart as well. You know, you're giving it that, don't mess with all that. And, you know, handbags at 20 yards. Well, it, it was animosity. We get into the changing room. It's gone off again. I'm like, and, and from where I'm from in Cov, right, you have an altercation with someone and it's kind of done and dusted. It, you know, there's a, but it's gone off again. And I'm like, really? We'll have it. Come on then, we'll have it. I've gone all, I've gone all street on him, right? So it's all died down, left it. I think it was a week later. Week later, Theo leaves. And we're announcing our new manager, Phil Chard. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know when you just go, Terry, that wasn't a good move. You're telling him you're going to knock him out. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. <laughs> right? And I know he's thinking, yeah, I'll show you now. So I'm thinking, oh, my God. Your days are numbered here, boy. Right, so we, we carry on in the first game. He, he played me because he he had no one else, mm. but he played me. But I don't think we spoke. We come back that summer. We do preseason. Preseasons kind of change. We're doing we're doing more kind of stuff. He he liked, which was more of the running and all the rest of it. And it, I can't remember it, but it, it must have been fine. And I think can't remember how many games I played, but he must have played me. But all through that. You always had that underlying feeling that, do you know what? This ain't going to happen. And the start of that 92-93 season, I'm sure we played Barnet opening game of the season. I've got Gillingham, I think it was. We played Barnet quite early on. Yeah, quite early on, Barnet. Was Barnet early on? (laughs) Yeah, lost 3-0, yeah. Yes, right. I'll tell you why I knew that Ryan was on the wall, <laughs> right? And you'll, you'll bear with me. So, I'm playing in that game, and it's at Underhill. And we're warming up and all the rest of it. And they're all there. They've all been on summer holidays, aren't they? Looking absolutely <laughs> marvellous, right? Honestly, bonnet, hair, shorts rolled right up. More than Steve Berry used to roll his up. <laughs> but they were looking magnificent. Junior Agogo, rest in peace, Junior, right? Mm. He's the ball's up the top end and he's centre forward. And he's got, I'll never forget this, he's got some silver Nike Tiempos on, right? So, ball's at the top end. We must have had one of our rare attacks going up the hill. We're defending the slope, right? So, we're attacking. I've tapped Junior. I've just tapped him like that. I said, yo. He says, he looks at me, typical London boy. Yeah. I said, I hope you can play in them boots. 
because they were silver, night tempos, bright silver. He just looked at me and tutted. 90 minutes later, we've lost 3-0. And you look on the record, Junior scored all three. Whistle's gone, full-time. I've found Junior. I've gone and found him. I've tapped him. I've gone, Junior, you keep wearing them boots, son. <laughs> I just walked off. And I, I said to myself then, do you know what, Terry? Never judge a book by its cover. <laughs> Junior was wearing these boots and Junior could carry off these boots. And if I should have known better, I should have gone down to the local store, brought a gold spray, <laughs> and sprayed them gold and said, here, Junior, wear them as well. Because that then just set the tone for the season. We never kind of hit it off, even though there was... I respected him as he's a manager and he played me. But the team then had changed so much. We were having so many problems off the pitch. Honestly, I could tell you some of the stories and you'd go, absolutely no chance. Because we weren't getting paid. And I, I must say this. One day we come in and we got allocated. And it's shame for Charlie because he'd been thrown into a situation that was terrible. Mm. And they had this guy who had taken over the reins. What was his name now? He had a ruddy, you know, the ruddy alcoholic nose. <laughs> we weren't getting paid and all the rest of it. And the PFA got involved and lads, to their credit, were turning up. Some were travelling distance, petrol and all the rest of it. Mm. Anyway, goes, lads, there's a meeting. And McRitchie. Sat us all down. So we're sitting in the changing room. He comes in. He goes, right, lads. Uh, I know it's been difficult times and um, you haven't been paid and I really appreciate it. And he's gone through this whole spiel. And we're like, get to the point. Where's our money? He went, listen, I got the money sent through to me on a bank transfer. So I put it straight in my account. So... You you lads have been great. You couldn't wait. I couldn't wait for it to clear. So what I've done, I've went and got some money from other people. And I'm going to pay you wages. So I've got this money from the other people. I know the transfer is going to clear in five days. Days before online banking, everyone who's listening. <laughs> online banking wasn't a thing then. right? So he goes, I've put the transfer in. I've got some money. So I put it in a suitcase. I put it in the car. You won't believe it. I stopped the car. I went for, he either went for a wee or went for something to eat, came back, and they've robbed the money out of the car. <laughs> what? The lads, Dan and Charles, the lads sat there going, in fact, they didn't even say anything. Mm. He goes, I didn't know what to do. And I think one of the lads went, did you call the police? <laughs> he went, nah, I went to see if I could find to see who nicked it. But I couldn't. So I've had to come and tell you boys. And you're like, are you for real, mate? Mm. Are you really for real? And then you then expect us to go out and play. Some of these people had children and mortgages. And the story, he had loads of them stories, by the way. Yeah. Every time we were meant to get paid, there was just another story. 
And you just thought, wow. And it, it, it really set me up well to understand that pro football just isn't the glamour it's made out to be, especially at that level. Obviously, we, we've encountered that since those years as well um, as a football club and, and more than more than once, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, it must do because if, if we just go go forward through that season, obviously it isn't great. I think we win 11 out of our 42 league games. Yeah. Um, which actually isn't bad considering. Um, everything's going on, yeah. So yeah, something. all of that happening. You guys as, as players must be very much just... Uh, I be, like you said it before. You know why are we why are we playing? Why we're not getting paid? Why are we doing this? When it comes to that game at Shrewsbury, we we have to win at the very least. Yeah. And do you, I mean I know obviously we we can watch the highlights back. We can see how much it means to both the players and and the fans at the time. But that must be just coming from your own pride. That's in a. I can't Charlie a little bit, but but what he did, he tried to lead from the front, right? And he tried to look at different ways of doing it. Listen, that game was shit or bust, right? That that is it. We tried. I say we, the board, must so recognise it and tried to do it right. And I can remember that day. I can remember that day like it was yesterday, and they tried to do it right. Because, you know, when you get one chance, this was our one chance. So up to that game, we had won 10 out of 41. So we won one in four, which drops you out of the league. So when we approached that game, we stayed in a hotel. It overlooked the river and... In the distance, you could just see the ground. And the hordes of Northampton fans walking through there at 12 o'clock, whose entire footballing world depended on 90 minutes of play. For most of us, we move on to another football club or retire. But this was so impactful for the fans, the 3,000 who packed behind the goal and around the side, the local businesses, the people who worked at the club and everything associated to it. I know it sounds corny, but the impact of a one club town professionally, right, who at the time the cricket was going great guns. The rugby was always doing well. So you're playing third fiddle. So people would quite rightly go, oh, don't give a shit about them anyway. You know, let them go and play in the National League, conference, whatever, because they're just using up energy we don't need because we've got the rugby, we've got the cricket. And when you look around that, you just go, wow. And for the first time that season, I was most probably the most nervous I've been in any football game. And it... It was the game, but it was the impact and the ripple effect of what what was ahead. I thought I held myself personally responsible. So I'm going, you now have to 
put something back into this for those people out there. And that that Shrewsbury thing, you, you can see how my voice changes, was so impactful on my entire career from that day onwards. It's an incredible sort of thing to look back on, of course, you know, from our point of view as fans, as you quite right, that could have been it. And, you know, if we had have dropped out at that point, who knows where we'd be now. But to hear you sort of talk about it in in the way that you have there, Terry, it's really, really impactful, I think, because there's no hiding behind anything. It wasn't a very good squad. It wasn't a very good football club back then. Mm. It was poorly managed, poorly run. And yet you, and I know you're only talking for yourself, but I, 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 I'm I, going to take it that there are a fair few other players that must have felt similar to what you've just described there because we go on and we win that game and, and we stay up and we we remain in the Football League. But yeah. to hear you talk about it in that way and, and to sort of go, I did that because it wasn't about me. It was about these people that are still going to be here after I've gone. I can't remember how many times you see on social media these days where when when football clubs aren't doing very well and they're near the bottom of the division, the first thing the fans do is that they all start going on about how the players, well, they don't care because they're not fans. They won't be here next season. It doesn't matter to them. It clearly did. It did. Because, Charles, you're talking about and whether that be selfishly or not, don't get me wrong. My livelihood was most probably on the line, right? Mm-hmm. But I'd only been in it three years. I could go back and work. Some of these lads didn't know about work. Some of them been in it since they were 16. So you don't know. It's like it, when you start school at four and then someone tells you you're leaving at 16, you don't know about the working life. It's not your fault. So... You look at that and and the pivotal moment, the pivotal moment for me was that free kick, ball plays over the top. I'm ahead of Carl Griffiths and I'm thinking I can get this. But as it's coming over, I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to control it because if I miscontrol it, he's in. So I let it bounce. But unbeknown to me, Carl Griffiths goes anticipated that I was going to let it bounce a second time. Ball goes over my head. I stumble. Uh, Bazza comes out, goes round him. I try and get round Baz, fall over Baz. Ball goes in the net. Gay Meadow is in raptures because they needed to win to get in the playoffs. I then get up and as I'm getting up, I look, as you look at the goal, just to the right, there's a guy. He looks at me, and I can't remember if he said something. But the look on his face wasn't anger. It was just defeat and hurt and pain. And I just mouthed to him, I'm sorry. And I turned and I thought, I've got to get myself back on this. And the saving grace was, they scored two goals in the first half. And with all due respect to Pat Gavin, right? And Maurice Scott and some of the other players you mentioned, they wouldn't have got in that team in the first year I was there, maybe not even in the second year. 
and you look round now and you're going, where do we go from here? Who's our match winner? And credit to Chardy. He led from the front. I think we went in at half time and he had a pop, but it was more of a motivational pop right. at people. You know, are you going to let this go? Do, 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 do. Mm. And we went back out there and we scored. Well, he scored, didn't he? Yeah, he he did. scored yeah. the first one. And all of a sudden there's hope. He gets the ball out the net and we run back. And all of a sudden now you can see the people behind the goal. And hope is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Right? Because hope gives you motivation. And hope gives you belief. And then you score the second. But physically on the pitch, their self-doubt was coming in. You, you could feel it. As, as a player, you, you can feel what the opposition are doing. They had self-doubt now. And we are on a crest of a wave. And all of a sudden, we're showing the ability which we hadn't shown for 30 of the last 41 games. But it was an ability we didn't have the skill set to be able to show game in, game out. But on a one-off, we could. And that's where I look at Chardy and I look round me and all of a sudden, on some people, Danny and Charles, who I didn't think were winners, I saw something in them. Mm. And they, they started now to go, come on then. And we go, come on, if we're going to have a fight, we're going to have a fight. But you know what carried us, I think, carried us through? At Christmas, we had a Christmas party and we all dressed up. And everybody to a person came to that party, maybe bar about two. And we were in Northampton, is it your Wellingborough Road? Mm -hmm. And we were down there and people greeted us and people were good to us. Nobody slagged us and said, you lot bag of shit, what are you doing out? Right. And that, that was a pivotal moment, which now I'm older and I reflect that day we had lunch together and then we went out and nobody was silly. And we got into some of the clubs and that day reenacted itself on that day at Shrewsbury. Because that togetherness just came back. And all of a sudden now you go, come on then. And then the rest is history. Let's move on because obviously you you leave the Cobblers at the end of that season. You you go to Fulham. Yeah. And obviously the next time that we we, we sort of, and, and most people that are listening that are a bit younger will will know you from, is of course when you're sat side by side with Tim and, and Jake <laughs> and others in the commentary box, either at Sixfields or at different stadiums across the country. And we we can't let you go anywhere without talking about that night at Anfield. Because <laughs> it is <laughs> it's just like that day at Shrewsbury was. Yes. That is another day that you were involved in that will go down in Cobbler's folklore. And while, you know, I, I can't remember how many of us, there were at least 5,000 tucked in in the Anfield Road end that night. But there's going to be several hundreds back at home in Northamptonshire that were listening to Tim's and, and yours and um, Jeff's commentary uh, of that evening, Jeff Doyle. 
and it's just iconic. Of course, oh, what happens not only at the end, but all the way through it. If if you've got the DVD, then I suggest you watch it because it is just amazing. Thank the you. the commentary all the way through is brilliant from Jeff and Tim, oh, and then your excitement is just, it captures the essence of what we as Cobblers fans were all feeling that night. And, you know, for somebody that is, you know, a Coventry fan really deep down, but has an affinity with the football club, it was fantastic. It was exactly what was needed for that night and for that game. Thank you. When the draw was made, I actually said to myself, oh, I wonder if they'll ask me. <laughs> I, did, I did. So when they said, do you want to do it? I didn't think, oh, great, it's Anfield. Do you know what I thought? I thought, brilliant. Be able to go there and watch the game. And I didn't even think about the job I had to do. <laughs> I, and I know people go, yeah, but you don't going to get paid. I'll, I'll tell people, I most probably got about 50 quid for that. Mm. That's what you get, right? But it, it, doing it, doing the whole summarising thing was never a financial thing. It was because I really enjoy the supporters, the football club. And is it, is it me going, is this a way of paying back to the supporters to show them how much I really cared? I don't know, because I really did care. But as I alluded to earlier, maybe I wasn't good enough to really propel the football club on the pitch to where they wanted to go. So rolling back to that day, we get up there, you get the passes and you do all that kind of stuff and you, you wander around, you get your seat. And you, you, you can see all the kind of local media sort of people and the people who work in their area going, oh... Another bloody low league team. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, give them that. Give them a sandwich. And then they'll go away. <laughs> they'll go away in a few days. <laughs> then we can crack on with playing Man United and Everton in the next few weeks. That, yeah. That's, you know, and you, you get there and we're all excited because, oh, look, you've got little TV screens. Oh, look, they've got microphones. <laughs> and no, Tim, no Mrs. Jones' sandwiches there. Exactly. And trust me, when I'm summarising right, I never get there early. Like you might have, you might have gathered. I always rock up about 20 minutes beforehand. So I'm there, must be hour and a half, two hours before kick or something. And what am I going to do? So I go off wondering. And then I, I spoke to a few people outside and, you know, just getting a feel of what they think. Oh, people are like really happy. Yeah, we're going to beat them 3 0. We're going to do that. And I'm like, deluded, <laughs> Liverpool. And, and you're just getting a feel. Again, link that to Shrewsbury. I'm looking out my hotel window at Shrewsbury, getting a feel. Yeah. And and so I get a feel of that. They'll go in the ground. And, and where we were at the press box, you could actually, we situate and you lot were all to our left. So you could walk a long way along that stand mm -hmm. that early in the game before they started blocking it off and no one was in. So I started walking down there and I, and I walked down to get a kind of picture of what they were seeing mm. as best as I could. Get back now, kickoff goes, and I find this geezer, I just see him, he's got a yellow top on, a 
and he stands out. And I'm fixated on him throughout the game. And I, during the commentary summarising, I mentioned, look at him in yellow, he's really happy and da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> when they score that goal, it was like the whole of my emotion of Shrewsbury, the excitement, I think, it'd been mounting up of all the years, you know, they say, don't they, the years of hurt. Yes. Mm -hmm. All those years of hurt. But on that moment, Northampton was on the stage. Mm. You were main act on the stage. And my excitement was because I wasn't summarising, I was supporting. Yeah. I listen back to it now and I go, that's terrible summarising. <laughs> it is. No, it didn't matter at that point. I don't think we needed summarising. Yeah, <laughs> in a moment like that, you don't need a summariser saying, oh, the tactical, this, this, and the yell. You need that emotion. And I, I'm so grateful that it was you in that commentary box that day to, to give us that because right. it was incredible to listen back to. And, it was so and that's good. what uh, it was. Uh, yeah. It was just, Dan, it was just emotion. Yeah. The emotion of being a supporter yeah. and wanting your team. And as much as I'm a heavy Coventry supporter, I, I, I so wanted that. And the closer it came, because I remember at the start, uh, Tim and Jeff said to me, oh, what do you reckon? I said, it's going to be tough, you know, all the normal stuff. I didn't think they'd win. But as the game grew, my emotion grew, my belief grew. Yeah. And we talked about earlier, hope and belief. Yeah. You know, we came there with hope. And after 50, 60 minutes, there was genuine belief. And then it, it erupts. And that was sheer emotion of the whole occasion. But I think there was something in the deep parts of my mind, which was Shrewsbury righted. I righted a kind of wrong. Mm. Yeah, I find that really, really interesting. And that is like the absolute best of football fandom, isn't it? Just yeah. of, And to be able to reflect that to us is was fantastic. Thank um, you. Well, we want to end it with the worst of football fandom, if that's okay. Go on then. Um, wanted to chat a little bit about racism in football. You've been in the game across, I mean, as a player, obviously one of the worst times for it. Um, what is now supposedly a defining era of tackling it, um, though not enough. Um, firstly, what what are your experiences as a player on that front during your playing career? Uh, I've, had, I've had a few. You know, it's, it, it always interests me. And when, when you talk to black players, Asian players, whatever, and they go, no, no, I've never had any. I'm like, flipping out. What world did you come from? I'd love to be in that world. Uh, they, 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 I've, I've had a few. And to be fair, I've had it from players. There was a geezer at, he played for Bath, Steve White. And there was another one, somebody Bennett played on the wing. Them two gave me, gave me stacks. And the ironic thing about Steve White was he then become assistant to A.D. Mings, Tyrone's dad, at Sirencester. And I remember I bumped into A.D. And I said, all right, A.D., how you doing, man? You all right? And he went, yeah, yeah, Terry, how you doing? Chat, 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 chat. And he went, do you know, do you know, Steve? And I looked him in the eye. And I must have been on a good day. 
I said, yeah, I know him. And he remembered me. He looked at me as if to say, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And because I was a better person than I was older, I just went, yeah. Now I could have given him loads. I could have just, I could have just sold him right down the river to Aidy, but I didn't. Um, off the pitch, you, you kind of get it with fans. I suppose I was fortunate because people like Benji and those before me would have got it even worse. I, I got it. At, I was at an era where it was deemed unacceptable but not totally unacceptable right so i didn't get worse but i must say i played at vs rugby and we played merthyr tidville and um this was a massive game it was huge because we were going to see who could get promoted they were getting crowds of four five thousand and at the time there was a boxer rest in peace johnny owen i think the matchstick man they called him and he was in a coma or he died in a coma and he was from Merthyr. So there was high emotion there. So we'd gone to this game. There was TV cameras, Welsh TV cameras there. This was my last year at VS before I went to Northampton. Welsh TV cameras, massive game. We had in our team, me, Gringo Greeny, Mick Shearer, Mark Rosegreen. And I might have missed one. So we had four or five black lads in the starting 11. You come out at Merthyr at the bottom end before they change their ground. You come out at the bottom end and there was this huge stand at the side. And I mean, the atmosphere was unreal. We had, there must have been 500 VS rugby fans. The atmosphere was, it was bubbling. But when I say hostile, hostile was not the word. It was bordering on hatred. And the abuse we were getting, Anyway, game thing going on. They got they got ball collectors all around the pitch. Ball's gone off, and they used to be from the touchline where the ball goes off to the stand. It was about, which is unusual, got to be about six seven foot. So you you had to run a bit to get the ball. So the balls I'll never forget. Ball's gone off, and it's gone to the stand. The ball boy looks at me. I'm thinking, yeah, go and get the ball. He's looked at me as if to say, you think I'm getting that? Get it yourself without saying it. So I'm thinking, oh, here we go. So I've gone to this main stand to get the ball. Picked it up. All I heard, and I'm not going to use the language, was you dirty effing N-word, C-word, N-word. Couldn't get out. So I'm like, oh, my God. I look up. It's the woman. This woman, she must have been mid-40s, dark hair. She was just... I, I looked her in the eye, and I think the shock of it being a woman must have made... I'm going, what? And I just thought, no one's done anything. And I kind of went to... I can't even remember if I went to the ref and said, and I just thought, wow, really? And that, the fact that it stuck with me for 30 years, 
if you said to me, does it affect you? And I go, no, nah, not really. It must do. It must do because I remember it. And it, it's things like that. But moving forward, as my career went down to the non-league and things like that, things become better, but it was still there. But I didn't get as much, you know, because as a centre-back, was I a threat? Maybe not. Was I ever at an end where fans could, where, where was I ever in an area where fans could do it? I got some. I did, you know, and, and different places you would go, you would get it. I, I can't say up north was worse than down south, was worse than the east, was worse than the west, because it, it was it was everywhere. But it wasn't to the point where, you know, I had to question whether I was going to kick a ball or not. In the era between, let's go, sort of when you were playing, you, you said yourself there that it wasn't, it was kind of getting to the point where it was unacceptable, but not wholly unacceptable. It was still taking place, but not as vociferously as it had done yeah. before you. Um, that period from there to about, I don't know, let's say the last sort of four or five years. Yeah. There is this thing where it's almost looked at by people. I would say, like me and Danny, who would say, well, it was kicked out of football for that big period of time and now it's coming back. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Or actually, are we just blind for those 25 years to it happening? And actually, it never went away. It's just now it's being reported on more. It's actually being back in the front of our minds. Right. And it's a great point you made, Charles. I don't think it's ever gone away. And what we have to recognise, it is not just a football issue. It's a social issue. Right? So we have to recognise that it is a... racism, homophobia, gender bias and all that. They're social issues as well. It's happening socially. So if I go back 25 years and I'm still playing, I would have some reservations about walking up to a football ground at some places I went. But at the same time, I would have had some reservations about going into certain establishments dotted around Coventry, Birmingham, wherever. So it it's a social thing. So we, we have to understand that, that it's not solely a football thing. Now, I've said it didn't ever go away. No, it didn't. But one of our problems is, is getting the people who matter to understand about the impacts it's having. So you're in the media game and hopefully you, your careers will go to the highest levels of media if that's where you want it to go. But if we don't have media taking it seriously and recognising the impact negative impact it's having how can we expect you Charles and you Danny to feel comfortable in an environment to challenge it mm -hmm. because if you haven't got an environment to challenge why would you challenge I never had an environment to challenge when I played in the 90s now players now 
have an environment to challenge. I work at the PFA on the Equalities Department, and I'm saying this is a reporting process. This is what you can do. But it's still going on. We are run, our football is run by the FA. So the FA make noise and want to do change. But then we all go, hold on, you want to make change, but you've got Greg Clark saying what he's just said. So you're screwed. You're screwed now. So that screwed you. Let's go to Europe. UEFA, you want them to implement change, but yet still, all they'll do is hear it and go, yeah, we didn't really, we, we couldn't understand what they were saying. It wasn't audible. Oh, when it's proven, right, beyond reasonable doubt, whether they go on reasonable doubt or fact, I think they go on fact, because if it's beyond reasonable doubt, more people, they go, right, we're going to give that FA a £25,000 euro fine. And we're going to shut the ground. Yeah. And because the authorities at UEFA, with all due respect, they don't know the shoes black and Asian people or whoever are walking in. Because in not so much France, in Spain, in Italy, it's, it's, it's not taken as seriously as here. And UEFA is full of delegates who are from those European nations who don't use and speak about racism in the way we speak about it here. And then you move that to FIFA, which is, they just kind of just back that to one side and say, well, that's UEFA's problem. So we're going to still have the problem. We will continue to have the problem until the media start going, hold on a minute here. We're going to start doing something because I do a lot of work with the police, the UK football policing unit around online abuse. I do a lot of work with them and they're doing loads of work. So we need them to do their work. We need the Crown Prosecution Service to do their work, but their hands are tied because there's a thing called threshold. So that happens and then we need the FA to put in sanctions. If I call somebody something discriminatory, they need to put in sanctions. So it, it, it's not just a one size fits all. It's a lot of components coming together. But as I say, Dan and Charles, England is if we go and say some things in England, we will get called out. But if you say I'm in Italy. It's acceptable. You know, you've just seen Nelson Piquet. He says what he says about Lewis Hamilton. Now, he thinks that's all right. And we're going, wow. Now, people in Spain, Italy, whatever, they'll go, oh, can't really see the problem. Because the M-word is not a problem in their country. It, 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 it's, it's more complex than, you know, that. But do you give up? No. You just got to keep going and you've got to give players the confidence to be able to report knowing that something's going to be done. But the players have to play a part and they have to report. If I come and rob your house and you don't report it, how can you expect the police to find me? 
If you keep reporting and don't as a player, see I'm ranting now, don't as a player go, oh, but you're not gonna, they're not gonna do anything anyway. That's so defeatist. And you know what? And I'll say it on this podcast. I'm happy to sit down with anybody, have a coffee or a latte or whatever, okay, and talk about football and the things around it. Because the greatest thing about football, it's about opinions. But let's not let someone's gender, sexuality or race damage the beautiful game that is football. That's a perfect, perfect way to end it, I think. Charles as well. Um, Terry, thank you so much. It's been, you know, you've stayed a lot longer than we asked you to. Um, So we really, really appreciate that. Um, It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, genuinely. I I Um, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Danny. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Charles. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back uh, next week. We might have some more pre-season campaign to look back on. Stay tuned to our social media for all the latest reactions to that. We'll see you soon. Cheers. Thanks a lot. There's the cup. There's the pictures you'll see on tomorrow's back pages. The coppers are going through into Division 1. Bring them on because we deserve it. Support the podcast on Patreon by joining the It's All Cobblers To Me fan club. Every month, you'll receive access to exclusive bonus content, such as our Meet the Staff series, hear our player interviews before anyone else, and be invited to regular meetups. By joining the fan club, you'll be helping us to continue our sponsorship of NTFC women's player Abby Bruin and enable us to keep the podcast and all our other content going to the high standards you expect. To join the fan club, go to patreon.com forward slash cobblers to me.